0: Turn your Bibles to the Johannine gospel, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John chapter one. John chapter one, we'll be looking in a moment at verses 19 and following. A distant figure on horseback approaches during the shimmering midday heat. He's nearer now. You can see that he's a bearded man in a dark cowboy hat and a long, dusty overcoat. The stranger is Clint Eastwood. It's Father's Day. I can do Clint Eastwood. The stranger is Clint Eastwood. The movie is High Plains Drifter. The townspeople fear him and three renegade gunmen try unsuccessfully to kill him. Nonetheless, he takes a room and decides to stay. Meanwhile, a group of outlaws are about to return to the town to take their revenge. Could the town leaders convince this mysterious man to stay and help them? This man, this man who is so good with a whip and a gun, mysterious at best Outlaw, another outlaw, at worst. At the end of the movie, as he is gunning down the jailbird, a dying man shouts the most memorable line for the movie, Who are you? Eastwood shoots a gun out of his hand and returns gunfire. With his dying breath, the man just barely whispers again, Who are you? Now, most of the Clint Eastwood movies I've seen are edited for the TV version. But this week I learned there are not a lot of Clint Eastwood quotes you can use in a Baptist church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> here's, a, here's a few you might could use Who Are You? That's a famous one, that's by a co star. And another one is Go Ahead, Make My Day. Or, You're a legend in your own mind, or the favorite of all, get three coffins ready. Well, John the Baptist isn't exactly Clint Eastwood, not exactly. He's more of a moral character to be sure, not a mysterious gunman, but the question is exactly the same in John's gospel. They want to know who this mysterious man is, this man by the name of John. Look at John 1, verse 19. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, here's, here's our Clint Eastwood quote, Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, I am not the Christ. They want to know. This mysterious prophet who's leading people down to the Jordan River and baptizing them by the droves. Is he the Messiah? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets? So they show up, they've been sent to ask the question, who are you? Now, if I put it in the King James text, it might sound less Clint Eastwood-ish. Who art thou? The question is in the King James which sounds more Shakespearean than a cowboy movie. Who art thou? Who are you or who art thou? It's the same question, what is your identity? We have a deputation from Jerusalem that Badger's the Baptist, they need to know, they've been sent, they get an answer. Who is, who in the world is John the Baptist? John's preaching, you see, has gotten too much attention. Matthew tells us that all of Jerusalem has gone out, that Judea has gone out. They've all gone down to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. How could the Jewish authorities, the religiously righteous themselves, overlook someone who had a flock of this size, a following this big? If this preacher preacher gains any more popularity, then well, all of Jerusalem will go and the Romans will come. And they will put down the uprising caused by this prophet baptizing in the river. It's a simple question. They deserve to know, I think. John, who are you? John was a puzzle. How do you figure out a man like John the baptizer? He didn't conform to either customary categories or the normal notions of the Pharisees. Now, nobody said anything thus far about him being the Messiah. But the expectations were in the air. God's people were living under Roman oppression and they were longing and they were praying for deliver a Messiah to release them back to freedom. They were looking for the Holy One of Israel, none other than the Son of God. And so when they ask, who are you? John knows what they're asking. They're asking, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the one good preacher? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you getting us ready for the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Who exactly are you? Are you claiming to be the Christ? Others had come and others had failed. Others had come claiming to be the Christ and to no avail, failure in the end. So John knows what they're asking. He knows what they mean when they ask, who are you? They're asking, are you the Christos, the long-awaited Messiah? Look at verse 20. And he confessed, and he did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. He is is emphatic. A A good translation would be, nothing doing, no way. I myself am not the Christ. He pulls no punches. Whatever else John might be, he wants to make it clear he is not claiming to be the Christos, the Christ, the Holy One of Israel. Now for us, Christ has become something of a confused name. We think Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. Christ is not a name. It is a title. It is the title for the anointed one, the holy one of Israel, the son of God. It is the Messiah. Verse 21, okay, if you're not the Christ, are you the guy putting out the orange cones? Are you Elijah? Malachi 4.5 says, that before the great and terrible day of Yahweh, God was send Elijah the prophet who had, who had been taken away in a fiery chariot. Elijah returned to make ready the way and Messiah. And John says, make no mistake, he says, no, I'm not Elijah either. Then are you a prophet? Apparently the Jews... So there were all sorts of prophets who might come before the Messiah. If you're not the Christ, if you're not the lead Elijah, then are you one of the other prophets who, who might come? But Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says, there'll be another prophet like me. In fact, in Acts 3, Peter equates this other prophet as the Messiah himself. So it's not the Messiah, Elijah, and another prophet. The prophet is the Messiah, Peter says in Acts three, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. He's quoting Moses to him. You shall give heed in everything he says to you. Now, John is getting agitated. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? His response has become more curt. No, no, no. I'm none of those. In fact, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, then they ask the question in verse 24, why are you out here baptizing? If you're not the Christ, why are you down the Jordan calling all of Jerusalem out to be baptized? Verse 27, he says, not only am I not the Christ, I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his sandal. I'm not worthy to bend down and loose his sandals. And then verse 29, John makes it clear. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He identifies Jesus. This is the Christ you've been looking for. Behold, the very Lamb of God who will take away all the sins of the earth. This morning, I want us to pick up four truths. From this story about John the Baptist down at the Jordan River. First of all, no man is who he is in his own eyes. No man is who he is in his own eyes. That's really true, isn't it? I might think in my mind that I'm a really great soloist, a really great musician, a a wonderful vocalist. I could have that in my mind, and I could even pay to cut my own CD and I could sell them to you and sign them and go on YouTube and try to be a sensation. Quit laughing, Parker. I could go, I I could go on American Idol. I've heard American Idol singers that are no better than I. I could go on American Idol and I could get up there. My grandmother told me I was a good singer and I believe I'm a really, really good singer. And well, we, we watched them come across the stage and she thinks she's a soloist or he thinks he's a soloist, but we know, the whole room knows you're not, right? I've pastored one other church, It was Meadowbrook Baptist Church in Waco when I was working on my PhD at Baylor and there was a lady in the choir who always insisted on doing solos and none of us, no one else in the room wanted her to do a solo, but she was sure that she should do a solo. You've got to know someone like that. And after one of her solos that we all endured, one of the deacons came up and said to her, Kim, I will never forget your interpretation of that song. It brought a tear to my eye today. Kim brought a tear to everyone's eye every time she sang. But because Kim thought she was a great soloist, it didn't mean that she really was. No man is who he thinks he is in his own eyes. Likewise, no man is who other men think that he is It doesn't matter if the Pharisees think that he's the Christ or Elijah, the prophet, doesn't make it so. You and I are not who we think we are. We're not who others think we are. All that matters is who God knows that we are. Now, how did I get this out of the passage? They asked him, are you the Christ? And he said, no. And then they asked him, are you Elijah, the forerunner of the Christ? Are you the one making the road ready for the Christ? And he says no to the idea of Elijah. I am not, he says. But in Matthew 11:14, 14, Jesus clearly says, if you care to accept it, John himself is Elijah. He is the one who is to come. Jesus, speaking of our character, John the Baptist down by the rivers said, John was the essence of Elijah. He was the prophet to get things ready. He is the return of Elijah of which the prophets have spoken. Then why did John say no? Why did John say he was not the prophet Elijah? They had seen Elijah leave the earth in a fiery chariot and knew that he would return the same way. He never even had to pass through death. So the Jews were waiting before the Messiah came. The sign would be the return of Elijah, the prophet. And in that sense, that he's the one sent to make the way ready for the Christ, he is, as Jesus said, exactly the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's Elijah. And while Jesus equates John with Elijah of Malachi's prophecy, that doesn't mean that John himself has any idea how God is using him or exactly what God has called him to be or what God has called him to do. In fact, Jesus says, no one born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. He is the essence, the presence of Elijah. Elijah you think really highly of yourself this morning, take little comfort. It means nothing about who you really are. Do others around you give you accolades? Don't get too puffed up. Their words mean nothing either. Again, all of those things crumble before the throne of God. All that really matters is who God knows you are. And he knows every thought, every idea, every hope, every joy, every sorrow. The only question that matters for John the baptizer or for you or for me is who does God know that I am? There's a second thing I want us to see in this sermon. We're all builders on the roadway. We're all a little bit sensitive in Amarillo to the orange cone syndrome. They don't ever seem to go away. They take up one and put down three. That's the way I've counted it. We, Amarillo could possibly be the orange cone capital of the country, I'm convinced of that. We might be the only community that was shut down I-27 and I-40 exactly the same time. Our planning is the equivalent of a cardiologist who says, let's just restrict all the major arteries and hope nothing bad happens. Like the restricted blood flow, our cars have nowhere to go. You come down here and try to leave downtown at 515, when right there at the convergence of I-27 and I-40, and it's very, very, very dangerous. Who are you, John? If you're not the Christ, If you're not Elijah, if you're not one of the prophets, who are you? Look at verse 23. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Like the prophet Isaiah has said, Isaiah 43. I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm the orange cone man, John the baptizer is saying. It's the imagery of roadway repair. Before a dignitary, a king or a commander would come, to your country, he would get the road ready. Every city that knew the dignitary was coming, they would go and they would take the low spots and they would fill them in. They would take the high spots and they would cut them down and even make the road straight. They didn't want the king to have to curve around the road. They would change the way of the road and take the bends out of the road so the king could come straightway into their community. John is saying we're all on the Orange Cone crew. We're all builders of the way of Jesus. Each one of us, like a Roman road builder, is to be busy preparing the way of the Christ. John's focus and my focus and your focus ought to be how do we get folks ready for the coming of the Christ? Are we preparing the hearts and minds of those around us to receive the message of the Messiah? Do we see ourselves like John the Baptizer as the voice given the clarion call? Get ready, get ready, the Christ is coming. I'm a voice in the wilderness. I'm not even a man, he says. I am a voice. I'm not the word of John 1. I am a voice. I'm not the Messiah. Getting ready the way of the Lord. There's a third thing I'd say once you know who Christ is, you begin to disappear. Once you and I really understand who the Christ is, we ourselves begin to disappear. Okay, you're not going to answer any of our questions. Then you, yourself, tell us, who are you? You're baptizing. What right do you have to baptize if you're not the Christ, Elijah, the prophet? This is what he says in verse 27. It is, it is not I, it is the one who comes after me and the thong of his sandal I am unworthy to untie. And don't forget now, Jesus said of those of us born by a woman that john was the greatest and john says he's not even worthy to unlace Jesus' sandal must less wash his feet then what does that say about us baptism was not anything new in the first century The Jews were all for baptism as long as it was the Gentiles who were getting baptized. Both men and women, Gentiles, would be baptized and men would also be circumcised before they could enter the Jewish community. And so as long as the prophets were out by the Jordan River calling the sinners the Gentiles, the filthy to come down to the river to be cleansed, then they were all for it. What made John the baptizer different was he called those who thought they were righteous. He called the Jews. He called the religious. He called those who are already in God's community. And he said, you need to come. You need to be baptized. We need to make the road ready for the Christ. And so John's uniqueness wasn't the idea of baptism like what you just saw. His uniqueness was that he dare call those who were Jews, those who were already thinking that they were righteous, that they themselves should also come, men and women, and be baptized I'm not even worthy to loosen his sandal he says a slave was expected to do all the hard task in life but a jewish slave wasn't even required to wash feet or take off the sandals Now bear in mind the roads were dusty and full of dung and feet were filthy and the teachers of Palestine were not paid and sometimes their disciples did all the tasks for them that a servant might do for a master. But in A.D. 250 we actually have it codified that it is written that all the things that a servant might do for his master a disciple will do for a rabbi except take off the sandals. It's codified in A.D. 250, existed long before then. Do we have trouble with pride this morning? Learn who Jesus really is. And like John, we realize we are nothing at all. In fact, that's John's testimony over in John chapter 3 and verse 30. He says, he must increase and I must decrease The Christ within me must increase and I must decrease. I can't be important anymore, John says. I've made the road ready for him. And now that the Christ himself has arrived, I must decrease and he must increase. Isn't that our testimony here this morning that as we realize who Jesus is and he dwells inside of us, that we ourselves must decrease in holding high, Jesus must increase that our selfish selves, our fallen nature, as we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we are to decrease ourselves and increase the Christ within us. How great do you and I really think that we are? A CEO Fortune 500 company, the CEO of the Fortune 500 company pulled into a service station to get gas. He went inside to pay, and when he came out, his wife was out there chatting with the attendant at the service station. And it turned out not only did she know him, but she had seriously dated him before she met her husband. And they were striking up an old conversation. So the CEO got in the car, and he figured out this was the old beau of his wife, and. As the two drove off in silence, he was pretty confident and cocky about who he was. And he says, I know what you're thinking over there, honey. I I bet I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking you're glad you married me and not a service station attendant. No, no, that's not what I was thinking at all, she said. I was thinking if I married him, he would be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you would be a service station attendant. That's what I was thinking. C.S. Lewis spoke of pride when he wrote, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they're guilty themselves. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we hate it in others. Pride. The word humility comes from the word humus, which means earth or dirt. When we are humble, it means we are close to the earth. We are close to the dirt. We are not high and lifted up. We're meek. And humility is not just being gentle or meek. It has nothing to do with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. It's not a personality type. What it means is that you're willing to be vulnerable. You're willing to be hurt. You're willing to go unnoticed. You're willing to be last. You're willing to be least. You're willing to be wronged. In fact, of all the words that describe Jesus, there may be no more accurate word than the word humble. How do you, how are you co-creator with God and become a Bethlehem baby? That's the ultimate humbling. There's a fourth thing, a final thing I want you to see. The real message of John is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Verse 29, and the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Thank goodness, in the Greek text, this is a present tense participle, which means the Lamb of God is continually taking away the sins of the world. Now, I want you to see, it's not just certain folks that he died for, it's not a small or limited number, but rather the declaration at the arrival of the Christ, when the Christ finally comes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In First John 2 2, our same writer, John, says, And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also he pays for the sins of the whole world. Don't water it down, don't change the theology of Scripture. He died for all sins, the sins of everybody in the world. And we have to receive it to be forgiven. We have to accept it. But his atonement is powerful enough for every creature ever created in the cosmos. I think surely he must have in mind when he says that Isaiah 53, of which John would be familiar, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Behold the lamb of God, the lamb led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he is cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people." Or earlier in Isaiah 53, surely the lamb has borne our infirmities, he's carried our diseases, yet we thought of him as stricken, struck down by God, and that was why he was so afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. Yes, I think when John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, he's applying every messianic passage that ever says, the Messiah will be a suffering servant, not a military hero, and he will die in your place and my place. And surely he would have been thinking of the Passover lamb as well, whose blood was spilt and marked the door. The death would pass over the home. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away all the sins of the earth. Aren't you glad? It's the participle, it means he keeps forgiving each generation as they call upon him. Imagine there was no Lamb of God. Imagine every sin that you ever committed had to be carried on your own back. Imagine for a moment that every bad thought you ever had about someone else, every wrong deed you ever committed, every lie you ever told, every lustful thought that ever infected your heart, that every bad idea or action in your life was yours for all eternity. That's where we'd be. Unless John, until John says, hey, behold the Lamb of God. And what does the Lamb do? He takes away the sins of the world. If you're here this morning, I want you to see the person of Jesus. I want this church to be the orange cone church for you. I want us to lay out the cones and I want us to shout, we are making ready the way of the Lord in your life. We are teaching you and showing you that you are a sinner just like the pastor of this church and every member of this church and that he has died to pay for your sins if you'll receive it he died for the whole world if you'll receive it maybe this is your day whether you're watching by live stream or television to say behold the lamb of God who takes away my sins I'm a sinner and I need a savior I don't want him to be my messiah too Or maybe you've already called Jesus Christ your Lord and maybe this is your morning to become part of this believing community, this community of faith and God is calling you to be part of us as we try to be the Iron Cones Church and take away the high spots and fill in the low spots and get even the curbs out of the Roman road so we can say, Jesus, when you come, we've been watching, we've been making the road ready to receive you. Let's pray. Oh, God, maybe there's someone here in this room or someone watching by broadcast. It would be her day or his day to say, this is my day to admit to myself, to be honest that I'm an awful sinner and I need a powerful savior. And that would make her or him just like me and every person in this room. With ancient Israel, we all watched and longed and waited for you to send that Messiah who would change everything, the co-creator with God, the creator of the cosmos of becoming a Bethlehem baby that he'd have a back to bleed and wrists to be pierced and a brow to bleed. Behold the sacrificed lamb of God who takes away our sins. God, maybe there are others who would come and be a part of this fellowship to say, I need community. I need to join them at the river and repent. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.